0: Welcome. Uh, Welcome to the digital version of the LSE and welcome to the Marshall Institute uh, and uh, welcome to a discussion about uh, uh, Nicola uh, Rehani's book, The Social Instinct. Um, As some of you who've joined us before will know, the Marshall Institute is very interested in good deeds. We're interested in how uh, people choose to use altruism or, or philanthropy or social entrepreneurship to improve the state of the world. So when I saw a book about um, the evolution of good deeds, uh, and when I saw that that book also included um, uh, sections on the humble brag, um, I thought it was absolutely essential that we host its uh, author uh, in a conversation uh, about altruism. Um, uh, Nicola uh, is the uh, Royal Society University Research Fellow and Professor in Evolution and Behaviour at UCL. Uh, she's also a leader of the Social Evolution and Behaviour Lab at UCL and uh, a very keen and I gather rather competitive cyclist. Um, so uh, uh, welcome, Nicola. We're very pleased indeed to um, uh, uh, That you've joined us at the LSE to talk about uh, this book um, which I strongly recommend you all uh, read Um, and if you don't read it then I strongly recommend you buy it anyway. Uh, It's a fantastically well-written and interesting um, uh, discussion of the things that we're going to talk about now. The plan for today is uh, we have exactly an hour. Um, I've asked Nicola if she'll sketch the ideas in her book for us for 10 minutes or so she and I will then have a discussion about some of the ideas she's raised we'll then open the floor to you all to ask uh, questions uh, which I will find in the Q&A so please start thinking about what you'd last like to ask Nicola and start putting those questions in uh, uh, in Q&A and Um, we're on Zoom and we're on Facebook uh, in a few days time. Uh, This will also go on the LSC's YouTube channel and will become a podcast. So uh, welcome Nicola, it's a delight to have you here. Um, Tell us a little bit about the social instinct, how cooperation shaped the world.
1: Thanks Stefan, thanks for that really kind introduction and for plugging the book as well. I'm really pleased that you've enjoyed it. So yeah, I'm gonna start by just giving you a little synopsis of what the book's about and why I wrote it. So I'm an evolutionary biologist and I'm deeply interested in the question of why individuals cooperate and what it means to be a social species. And I'm so interested in that question that I wrote a book about it and that's what we're gonna be talking about tonight. So The Social Instinct is a book that's about cooperation and that's what I've been more or less focusing on in my academic career since 2004. In a colloquial sense I think the word cooperation has been somewhat hijacked by bland corporate metaphors and it now tends to evoke images of cheerful teamwork and firm handshakes and in fact if you go to Google Images and type the word "cooperation" in and do a search term on that word, you get a bunch of images of people doing, frankly, quite weird things with their hands. Cooperation is clearly more than handshakes and teamworks. It's sewn into the fabric of our lives, explaining things like how we manage to um, survive something as mundane as our morning commute. All the way to our most amazing achievements, things like building the Sistine Chapel or sending rockets into space. Cooperation is our own species superpower and it's the reason that we've managed not only to survive but to thrive in every habitat on earth. Less obviously and something else that I talk about in the book Cooperation is also the reason that we exist in the first place. So if we zoom right down to the molecular level, what we see is that all living beings are made of genes cooperating within genomes. And multicellular organisms are made of cells that cooperate to generate these beings that we call individuals. In a few species, We also see cooperation occurring among individuals. Most commonly on the planet, this occurs within the confines of family groups. These these species that live in these cooperative groups are some of the most successful species on the planet. And of course, we are among them. One of the other things that I talk about in my book or that I try to um, explain Is where the differences between humans and other species lie and where we can start to find similarities between our own cooperative behaviour and what we see in other species. One of the really tempting things from a human vantage point is to believe that we're different, that we're special, that we help and sacrifice and cooperate more than other species on the planet. But the truth is that humans are just one of many species that live a social life. So the book is about humans but it's also about the other species that we share this planet with that live in social groups and also cooperate in lots of different ways. One of the common uh, temptations when we're trying to compare what we see in human behaviour with what we see in other species is to look for examples of human-like behavior in our closest living relatives. So among the great apes and also uh, specifically chimpanzees and bonobos. In my book, I talk about how this approach is quite blinkered and that the social behaviors that have a distinct whiff of humanness about them are often not found in apes or even other monkeys or, you know, in the primate order, but they do appear in much more distant connections. So to give you a couple of examples, teaching is a a behaviour that we think of as being quintessentially human. And teaching is a cooperative thing to do because it involves helping a pupil to learn something that it might not otherwise be able to learn independently. Where we see examples of teaching in the non-human animal kingdom is not among the apes and, and other primates, but in fact among ants, among meerkats, and in a strange species of bird that might be less familiar to you called the pied babbler, which is a very social bird that lives in the Kalahari Desert and a species that I worked on for my PhD. To give you another example of this, where we find these similar kinds of behaviours in quite distant connections. We know that humans undergo physiological menopause and that's linked to our social lives and specifically the fact that we live in extended family groups. But we know that none of the other great apes undergo physiological menopause, whereas we do see it in a handful of toothed whale species that are obviously much more distantly connected and related to us. So one of the key points in the book is that if we want to understand our own place on Earth, we have to compare social behavior, not just with what we see in primates and the other great apes specifically, but look to completely different branches of the evolutionary tree where we find the other highly social species. Looking long and hard at precisely what humans and other animals do and don't have in common has been the mainstay of my career so nowadays I mostly work on humans and I'm pretty desk bound at my job at UCL but um, during my career starting with my PhD and then going on from that I've worked on a variety of different animal species so I started out working in the Kalahari desert on that species of bird that I mentioned a moment ago called the pied babbler. So that involved around four years of traipsing around the desert following these very social birds and trying to understand more about their lifestyles and their social behavior. I've worked on Damaralan mole rats in a broom cupboard in Pretoria. Mole rats are also uh, a very highly social species of mammal that lives in sub-Saharan Africa as well. I've worked on apostle birds in rural Australia in the outback in Australia. And I've also worked on a strange species of fish that lives on coral reefs called the cleaner fish. All of the species that I've worked on, including humans have something important in common. They all cooperate. So when we look at the babblers, the mole rats, the apostle birds, we see that cooperation is ring-fenced within the family. cleaner fish do something different. They help non-relatives, and in fact they help complete strangers that they don't even know. And humans, of course, are very interesting because we do both. Any talk of cooperation also needs to acknowledge the flip side. Cooperation is infinitely vulnerable to freeloaders and cheaters who might try to exploit the collective for their own gain. Another point that I make in the book is that Often, these social cheats are cooperating, but they're just cooperating in ways that generate costs to other individuals. So, for example, cancer cells sometimes cooperate inside our bodies, and that exacts a cost on the host organism. Nepotism, corruption and bribery are all forms of local cooperation occurring among friends and family members that nevertheless impose wider costs to society. So a key point really is to acknowledge this idea that cooperation can and often does have victims. Cooperation is part of our history and we all now realise perhaps more than ever that it will define our future. A fact that's really been brought home by the pandemic that we're experiencing And also the fact that many of the global problems we now face, things like anthropogenic climate change, habitat destruction, um, loss of biodiversity, are all problems of failed cooperation. I'm not going to sit here and pretend to you that I've got all the answers to these very, very difficult problems, but they clearly pose a very urgent question, which is how can we encourage cooperation at global rather than local scales? How can we encourage billions of individuals to make a personal sacrifice and to prioritize the we over the me? It's heartening that we have succeeded at solving some of these global social dilemmas before, but there are plenty of examples where we've also failed. And so while I think our species can tackle these kinds of issues, I don't think it's a given that we will. Just to give you a bit of overview of how the book's structured, it takes a broad narrative approach to understanding cooperation, and it's structured in four parts, where we start very, very small on the micro scale and keep zooming out until we get to large scale societies. So part one is called The Making of You and Me, and that's all about how cooperation generates the multicellular um, beings that we call individuals and the kinds of conflicts that can also occur inside multicellular bodies. And for example, during pregnancy and things like this. In part two, I zoom out a little bit. This is the part called the family way. And here I explore how cooperation gets going in family groups and what it means to be a species that lives in families. So in this section of the book, I talk about things like the evolution of parental care and when males and females work together to raise offspring, and what kinds of conflicts arise within family groups and among the sexes. Part three, I zoom out again a little bit, this bit's called widening the net, and here I talk about cooperation among non-relatives, among strangers, and people we don't necessarily know, and what kinds of evolutionary mechanisms can support cooperation when individuals don't have a vested genetic interest in one another's fitness. The final part of the book is called a different kind of ape. And this is the part where I really do compare humans to the other great apes and specifically look at the key psychological differences between our own species and those of chimpanzees in particular and show how things like a concern for for fairness a tendency to compare ourselves with other individuals, the willingness to collaborate and uh, share meritocratically any spoils of collaboration that you're able to achieve are all key psychological ingredients that have explained how humans have managed to scale up from very small-scale societies to living in the massive large-scale societies that many of us now live in today. So that's The Social Instinct. I hope that gives you a decent overview of what the book's about. And I'm looking forward to taking your questions.
0: Brilliant. Thank you so much, Nicola. Uh, one of the things I love about it um, uh, is that it, it pushes us on from this old, old-fashioned notion that cooperation was something uniquely human um, and explains, as it were, the story of cooperation from a cellular level up to a societal level, and of course, this audience, you know, the the LSE audience, um, is mostly comprised of social scientists um, um, who who know only too well the problems of collective action and the tragedy of the commons and uh, free riding um, and and uh, free loading, as you describe it. And I wonder if. First, I could ask you to recount the Reagan Airport um, uh, Uber story from your book, which I hadn't come across before. I thought was absolutely fascinating. Um, uh, uh, and, And then second, to talk about whether you think whether you think this this collective action problem, whether there are any things we can learn uh, 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 about that? Because because most of the biggest problems that we face at the moment are, uh, uh, around climate or, or, or inequality or whatever it might be are essentially collective action problems.
1: Sure. So the Reagan airport story is a really good one that I came across. It must have been before the pandemic because it was when people were still travelling through airports and getting Ubers home. Uh, and the story really illustrates how local scale cooperation can generate wider costs or how cooperation can have victims. So the story goes something like this. Um, As the passengers land at Reagan International Airport, the fleet of Uber drivers who are waiting to take the passengers home collectively switch off the app that indicates their availability. And then they wait. So at this point, the demand from the passengers is outstripping the putative supply because everyone has their app switched off and that causes surge pricing to kick in whereby um, the the additional demand or the higher than normal demand relative to the supply means that the passengers will have to pay more for the Uber that they take home. So once the surge pricing has kicked in, Then uh, the ringleader of this operation gives the signal and everybody turns the app back on again and they take the passengers who will pay a little bit more to be journeyed home. Now, on one level, you might think this doesn't sound particularly cooperative. This is a case of the Uber drivers working together to exploit their passengers in a way. But on another level, when we look at what's actually happening among the drivers, we see that this is a case of cooperation because the drivers have to work collectively and they have to all do it together. They have to turn off their app. They potentially miss out on a fare altogether by turning off the app. And it's only if they do work together that they can generate this local public good, which is the surge pricing. And so what we see through this example is that often Cooperation is happening at local scales, but it can generate these wider costs or it can generate costs to another group of individuals, in this case, the passengers. I talk about in the book many other cases of where we can think of this, um, of global scale cooperation being undermined by cooperation at local levels. So inside our bodies, that can happen in the case of cancer, for example, and many other genetic conflicts that happen inside our bodies, where some genes um, prioritize their own interests over the interests of the collective, and which often have quite severe negative repercussions at an organism level. When we think about these kinds of things happening at a societal level, we can think of cases of things like nepotism and corruption and bribery, all being examples of local cooperation that generate wider costs to society. You asked me to comment on what this will tell us about our ability to resolve global social dilemmas. And I think one of the key take homes is that cooperating in ways that generate global benefits or cooperating at global scales is much more difficult for us to do than cooperating at local scales. It's not as natural for us to do it, and we're much more inclined to cooperate with people that we know, with our family, with our friends. And so resolving global public goods problems relies on us finding ways either to cooperate globally or, as Eleanor Ostrom famously advocated, cooperating at local, local scales but in ways that generate global benefits so she very famously referred to that idea of um thinking global acting local and in reality you know there's no there's, there is no silver bullet solution to the kinds of huge global problems that we face and probably a mix of lots of different approaches will be required but one thing to keep in mind is that in any case where we 're trying to generate these global benefits and we 're trying to work towards generating a global public good, there is always the potential for that to be undermined by cooperation at lower levels
0: yeah and I mean I guess working with the grain of with the grain of what we understand about the propensity to cooperate i mean one of the lines that stood out for me in your book um, Uh, speaks to a a reluctance that we have to believe in altruism uh, being disinterested. You you write at one point something along the lines of um, uh, apparent acts of kindness can be reconciled with long-term benefits to the person, as it were, making the act of kindness. And we, uh, in my experience, we chafe a little bit at, at that. We don't think of that as altruistic um when the when the returns also return to the to the actor. Um, but presumably in your work you see that all the time.
1: Yeah, and um so one thing that I get accused of quite frequently is taking the altruism out of altruism. And I get accused of that by showing in a way how selfless acts or helpful acts can be explained from an evolutionary perspective. And in doing so, show how they can be reconciled with long term benefits to the individual. So I think that the accusation in some ways stems from a bit of a confusion whereby evolutionary biologists don't always articulate clearly enough what kinds of explanation that we're trying to offer for behavior that we see. So as an evolutionary biologist, we tend to think in terms of why questions. So we're always going around asking, why is this happening? Why is that happening? And when we ask why questions, there are broadly speaking, two broad buckets of or categories of explanation that we frequently deal in. So on the one hand, we have these categories of explanation that we call proximate level explanations, and these are concerned with the immediate motive to perform to perform a behaviour, or a drive, or maybe even a physiological mechanism. So, for example, if I were to say, why um, why is a lioness uh, chasing a gazelle? If I'm lucky enough to be on a safari and I see a lioness doing this amazing behaviour, I might say, why do lionesses chase gazelles? Well, a proximate level answer to the question would be something along the lines of she has a negative energy budget she, that fe- she feels subjectively hungry. Um, maybe she has cubs to feed and they've been crying. So all of these, there are lots of different proximate level answers to the question of why we can offer to that question. The other big bucket of uh, explanations we evolutionary biologists like to think about are what we call ultimate or functional explanations. And in these, we're really concerned with the function of the behavior in question, and specifically how it relates to that individual's survival and reproductive success. So if we go back to the lion again, we've said one reason why she's chasing a gazelle is that she's hungry. Well, that's a proximate mechanism. But a functional explanation would be something like, on average, lionesses who get off their bums and don't sit under a tree all day but occasionally do get up and chase a gazelle around and catch it and eat it tend to have more cubs that survive and tend tend to survive better themselves than individuals that don't do that and so we can see that those two behaviors are not mutually exclusive they're just appealing to different levels of explanation Um, another one that I like to use because I think it's more intuitive for humans is if we think about why we have sex on a proximate level, there are lots of different motives and desires that would prompt someone to have sex. But on a functional level, we all agree that the functional uh, significance of sex is to produce offspring. Now, what we're not saying is that every time people do this, they're doing it with a view to producing an offspring. that's clearly a nonsense and I hope that that helps people to see that when we're we're giving these functional explanations for helping behavior and saying sometimes helping behavior can increase that person's evolutionary success, can increase their fitness, we're not really saying anything about the proximate or psychological mechanisms that are involved. And what that means is that lots and lots of kind and helpful acts can be motivated by very pure psychological mechanisms by a genuine desire to help another person, by genuinely enjoying being a helpful person or um, by empathy or concern for another individual's plight. All those things are completely compatible with an evolutionary perspective that also says, yes, but the reason your brain is designed like this and my brain is designed like this is because on average individuals that did those
0: things were more successful it's interesting you should talk about that and and it's interesting you should talk about your discipline because one of the things I particularly appreciated about your book is it doesn't make as it were kind of um, it doesn't turn the entire uh, the, the entire um, evolutionary story into one that had um, had an ending right at the beginning, and everything was as it were trending towards this superior outcome um, and I wonder if you could if you could just talk briefly about about what you take to be some of the issues around the popularization of your discipline, which has led to some kind of, you know, what you and I were talking about before we came on as just so stories.
1: Yeah, sure. So I think everyone's probably familiar with that image. If you type evolution into Google image and you see that really famous image of Um, the 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 monkey and then it turns into an ape and then finally you go it progresses and it's a standing up man and I think it was Adam Rutherford I heard once describe that image as one of the most pernicious representations of evolutionary biology and I totally agree with him because it it totally um, engenders this idea that evolution is a directional process that there's lower forms at one end of the scale. And then there's us at the, you know, we're the kind of pinnacle at this end, you know, perfection has been achieved in the in the human form. And it gives the impression that evolution um, has some kind of foresight or that there's some inevitability inevitability about the way that these changes are going to occur. And of course, you know, none of that is true. Evolution has no foresight. It's completely random. There's no directionality. Um, And there's no way in which um, humans are objectively superior to any other species on the planet. And so I think that that popular depiction of evolutionary theory has a lot to answer for in some respects. I'm sometimes called an evolutionary psychologist. I slightly uh, resist that categorization. I, I mean, I was trained as a biologist and I did my degree in zoology, But I have now become very interested in the psychological mechanisms that underpin cooperation, in particular in humans. So I sometimes get called an evolutionary psychologist. And the reason that I resist it is that evolutionary psychology doesn't have um, an unblemished reputation among other academics or even or among the public as well. And I think there's a perception that some branches of evolutionary psychology deal in what you call just-so stories, where the idea is that you see something out there in the world, some human trait, and you come up with a plausible-sounding evolutionary hypothesis for that trait and then assert that that's why the trait exists. So actually, I posted one of these, I shouldn't really, um single papers out, but I did post a an evolu- you know, one of these kind of classic uh, just-so-story evolutionary psychology papers on my Twitter account today. Other ones that that I've seen quite recently include, um, oh, I don't know if I can say this on the LSE podcast, but the idea that, me, that men engage in oral sex so that they can detect whether their partner has been unfaithful or not. But, so, I mean, it's just completely outlandish kinds of claims that don't have any... Real basis in fact and crucially aren't tested against um, plausible alternatives or against comparative accounts where we look at other species as well and think about what might be plausible so I think there is the potential as in any science for evolutionary psychology to to produce unreliable work or to produce bad work i think we I think evolutionary psychology potentially gets a bad rap because we're dealing in a subject that people know so much about and that where people already have quite a strong intuition about why they think humans behave as they do. Um, I think this probably goes on in other disciplines. I'm just not as much plugged into those other disciplines to really be able to comment.
0: Yeah. Very interesting. Very interesting. Um, We're going to shift gear slightly now and start and start taking some questions that uh, that I can see. I don't think you can see them um, uh, th- that have come in through Q and A. Um, and David Harris, I don't know where in the world David is, asks about asks about war uh, and uh, the fighting of a war being at least viewed from a national perspective as intensely cooperative. Um, but but it, but he asks whether there's a sense in which humans need an energy to uh, so, sorry need an enemy uh, to facilitate those kinds of heightened forms of of cooperation and and even mutual sacrifice and the kicker in his question is 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 anthropogenic climate change that level of en- of enemy which might prompt the same level of cooperation
1: it's a really interesting question and i'm glad that um david asked it actually because one critique or one misunderstanding of the work on cooperation is is often that people will say oh well what about war that's not cooperative but as the as David Harries has pointed out actually war is an intensely cooperative act it involves sacrificing potentially sacrificing your life for a greater good you know a national level good Uh, And we know from lots and lots of studies, both done in the lab and also um, studies in the real world, that between group competition, or basically having an enemy, is something which can help to foster cooperation within groups. So this idea that having an enemy to fight against can make the individuals in the group more likely to cooperate with one another. I actually talk about this in the book, using um, the example of the Apprentice, which is a show in the UK that centres around um, Lord Alan Sugar and a bunch of hopeful recruits who are all trying to be hired to be the next apprentice. So the structure of the show is um, that in the all the uh, candidates are put into two teams in the first half of the show and they they're in competition with with one another to do some kind of business relevant act like designing a chocolate bar or they have to do something basically and there's two teams they're in competition with each other at this point when the two teams are in competition with one another then they're very you often what you often see on the show is that within team cooperation is quite high everyone is on board they're all usually kind of matey and Everyone's friendly and everything's working out quite well within those two teams. At some point in the show, they have the reckoning where, where it's decided which team is the winner and which one's the loser. The one which has made the most money is the winner and the losing team is if everyone in that team um, is, is um, taken into the boardroom. So then now you have the losing team of, say, four individuals and one of those individuals will be evicted off the programme. Now, at this point, there no longer is any between-group competition. The winning team have been sent home. They're going to fight another day in the competition. But one of the members of the losing team is going to be evicted. And at this point, where there's now no longer any between-group competition what's really common on the programme is to see that all these erstwhile allies basically just turn on one another. They start saying how they never thought that this person was doing a good job or the reason why we lost the task, it's all because of him or her. And so what you see, in a way, in, in this sort of very stylized example on television is the importance of between-group competition for fostering cooperation within the group. And when that between-group competition is taken away, then those that, that within-group cooperation can be quite fragile and can completely disappear.
0: And that is exactly one of the currents in the questions in the Q&A. Um, there's a series of questions. There's one from Warren Horrod wilson there's one from Dominic Stevens. There's one from Andrew Purvis, and what they're all asking is, um, we understand that that cooperation is not about zero-sum strategies. It's a, it's a, it's about plus-one strategies. But what happens when it is zero-sum? Either because resources are too scarce, um, or because um, you know you're pitted group against group um, does your research give any insight into that into
1: the role of competition or
0: yeah into it if 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 it's natural to cooperate natural but not necessary um uh, but the conditions for cooperation are simply absent because if you cut co- if you if you don't compete you'll die um or you can or there's only enough res- food to go around you know, one, one rather than many. What does that do to the the impetus, the cooperative impetus?
1: So one of the big insights from evolutionary biology is that cooperation is at its heart a competitive strategy. Cooperation, or joining a team, if you like, is a way that individuals or entities, genes or cells, improve their own position in the world. So sometimes you're quite right that the um the 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 amount of resources or what sometimes evolutionary biologists call the scale of competition is such that cooperation is really not supported at very high levels at all and it might be only very likely to occur among a very small number of individuals. When those conditions are relaxed, then we can tend to see cooperation will be more likely to flourish in larger groups, but it's highly context specific, and I think it would be disingenuous of me to give a sort of very glib answer here as to what are the conditions that favour cooperation, but in a broad sense, cooperation is a strategy for success, it's a strategy for relative success and the word relative is important because relative implies competition and so Cooperation is a way of, of individuals improving their own position in the world, whether they're aware of that or not. Remember, we're not, we're not imputing any self-interested motives necessarily. It's just a fact that cooperation is a means, if it's under positive selection at least, it's a means to improving success. And it is by definition competitive.
0: So step 1 is to stop thinking of cooperation and competition as um uh, as in opposition they are they're kind of in lockstep.
1: Yeah and so in the book I I say they're sort of two it's a double edged sword or they're two sides of the same coin and I think you know the examples we've already discussed show just how you know whether your perspective on something is that it's cooperation or that it's competition really depends on the lens through which you're looking so if we just think about the uber example again if you're one of the uber drivers then you know that's an example of cooperation but if you're viewing that from the passenger's perspective that's an example of competition or exploitation and so how we classify things depends really on whether we're taking whose perspective we're taking in that interaction that we're interested in
0: Yes, yes. I mean, it's very interesting to hear you say that because, because the way we—I mean—I don't think this example is in your book—but the the way we, the way we frame the notion of cuckoos, as it were, using others, other nests, that's a, that you could describe that as as highly competitive and exploitative, and in and in as it were anthropomorphic terms, um, uh, 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 you know, cruel and 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 undesirable. But you could also describe it in exactly the way you do. Um, as a as a as kind of enlightened uh, enlightened form of cooperation is that is that that's what you mean isn't it?
1: Um, I suppose so. But although I would say that in the case of the cuckoos, it is more, it's a strict that's a classic example of parasitism where okay. the cuckoo who lays its eggs in another bird's nest is essentially exploiting the fact that this bird has built a nest for its own purposes, nothing to do with the cuckoo. The, the other these reed warblers and other birds that. Are parasitized by cuckoos are not trying to help cuckoos in any way. In fact, there's very strong selection on these birds to evade cuckoos. And yeah. there's lots of lovely work that's been done by Nick Davies um, at Cambridge showing how the reed warblers can are so good at recognizing their own eggs relative to the cuckoo's eggs and very good at ejecting um, eggs that look foreign and lots of different strategies they use. So in this in this case, it's actually a case where one Class of individual, the cuckoos are parasitizing the the efforts of another, and I would hesitate to call that cooperation okay. in any sense really but
0: okay. um, bad you know, bad example, bad example fielded by me
1: well I think another another case of parasitism is of course like a virus like coronavirus that piggybacks on our sociality. For its own gain and you know when we're, we're actively trying not to help coronavirus in society now we're trying to take measures to stop it from doing that and yet it is able to parasitize our, our social lives in a way or our sociality.
0: Um, Claudia Ortiz has a question. I don't know if you're going to have a view about this, but it's about it's 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 not about as it were comparing uh, human communities with with animal communities. Mm-hmm. It's about human communities and other human communities, and specifically whether um, indigenous communities have uh, uh, have have, uh, have cooperative behavior models that might be um, that, that 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 we might emulate. I'm guessing that's quite far from your expertise.
1: I talk quite a bit about um, traditional human societies in the book and in particular contemporary forager societies and also what we think was going on in ancestral human groups. I think there is this slight tendency to assume that, you know, life in an ancestral hunter-gatherer group was, you know, sort of very peaceful and lovely. And I think, that's a bit of a misrepresentation. So, you know, in lots of, um, at least in sedentary tribal societies, there's lots of warfare among neighbouring groups. Um, So just one example of that would be the Turkana who live in, who are contemporary tribal society who live in Um, rural Kenya and who frequently undertake raids to neighbouring groups with the aim of stealing cattle and sometimes women as well and bringing them back to their own group. One thing that is commonly said about forager societies in particular and by forager societies I mean in societies where humans weren't sedentary they weren't fixed to one specific place and and it was easier for individuals who didn't like the group that they were in to essentially walk away from from that lifestyle or from that arrangement one thing that is commonly said about life in foraging societies is that it would have been much more egalitarian than what we saw in the advent of the agricultural revolution where where humans essentially settled down, and where we started to see the emergence of really hierarchical um, social structures, unlike those that had, pre- unlike those that had previously existed, as far as we know, uh, and that probably has to do with the difference between being living in a society where you can't really accumulate property very easily, you haven't got anywhere. To put stuff like what how do you accumulate wealth or possessions? How do you carry those things around with you? If things, if you're if there happens to be someone in the group who is um, a psychopath or a bully or a big shot, they will be effectively taken down by the other group members, either ostracized, sometimes um, forced to live separately to the other individuals, and in extreme cases, maybe even killed. Um, all those kinds of mechanisms for deterring individuals from these sort of coercive, dominant strategies didn't work as well once humans settled down and once we once we, we entered the Neolithic with the agricultural revolution. We did see much more hierarchical societal societal structures, and I do talk about this in the book and the reasons for. Why humans might have accepted this arrangement where, you know, we've previously lived in relatively equal societies and and by equal, what I mean is most men had um, similar reproductive success. That's the that's an evolutionarily relevant way to measure egalitarianism to societies where, you know, for every 16 men, potentially only one of them was having offspring and the other 16 were Um, were not having any children at all so quite extreme inequality so yeah I think there's lots of reasons that why that could be but the difference between being mobile versus being settled I think had a really important role to play in the advent of extreme hierarchy in human societies and we've obviously in modern industrialized societies we are now nowhere near as hierarchical as some of the earliest um, agricultural societies
0: were interesting super interesting um juan facundo mahul Fajardo has a question um which uh I mean, essentially I th- if i understand the question correctly um is really asking whether uh, altruism confers uh, a, a, a advantage um if, if it's i, a, I guess a i advantage. guess for humans i guess for humans but it, uh, yes for humans i think
1: Well, I think I can answer it more or less anyway in a general sense, which is that for altruism to be under positive selection, by definition, it has to confer a fitness benefit. So there are two broad routes by which that fitness benefit might be obtained. One route is the route that we call indirect fitness benefits, or sometimes it's also called kin selection, whereby, and this is, you know, what we see in lots of family living species, um, all of the social insects, the meerkats, humans, babblers, lots and lots of species that live in family groups, where maybe just a couple of individuals breed, or in the case of social insects, just one queen is laying all of the eggs in that colony, And everyone else is destined to be a worker, to not breed and to just help to raise the offspring of the queen or of the dominant pair. Those investments or that reproductive sacrifice can be explained in terms of indirect benefits, because the helpers and the individuals that they help share copies of the same genes. And so there's a vested genetic interest there that offsets the cost of lost personal reproduction, essentially. The other big route by which altruism can pay, if you like, is by direct benefits. And so in this uh, bucket of explanations, we can think about strategies like reciprocity. I'll help you and then you'll help me. Or concern for reputation. I'll do a good thing. And I will gain some kind of status or prestige benefit from doing that, that will ultimately generate real tangible benefits to me in terms of survival, um, social position, social capital, fertility for, for men and for women and survival of offspring. And these are all documented known effects that accrue to individuals who gain prestige and who gain status. And so there are, Those are the two broad ways that we tend to think of, of of how altruism can pay in terms of either indirect benefits that accrue to your kin or direct benefits where you pay something to help another individual. And ultimately you get paid back more than your initial investment.
0: Interesting. Uh, There's a question from someone who I suspect knows knows your research. Uh, The question is, did you find any evidence of cooperation between Drongo's, to outwit attempts by pied babblers to deter them from sharing food supplies?
1: So that's a really nice question. I don't know who asked that, but... Um,
0: Stephen Weinrabe. Um, okay,
1: so drongos are a a very sort of cheeky bird that associates with groups of foraging meerkats and foraging babblers. They have a forked tail, um, which is apt in a way because they're quite duplicitous. So a drongo is this small blackbird and they are very, very acrobatic and they're also very, very clever. So they're very, very good vocal mimics. What that means is they can replicate very accurately the calls and specifically the alarm calls of pretty much all the other birds that the babblers and the meerkats would normally encounter in their Kalahari habitat. So For a moment, just put yourself in the shoes of a babbler or a meerkat. How you make a living is by swishing away piles of sand looking for invertebrates in the hot Kalahari sun. And you forage on the ground. And your technique, whether you're a meerkat or whether you're a babbler, is head down, tail up. That leaves you very vulnerable to aerial attacks from birds of prey, of which there are many in the Kalahari So you're pretty vulnerable, you're on the ground, you've got your head in some hole looking for a scorpion or an invertebrate of some sort that you can eat. And you're vulnerable to these aerial attacks by predators. Drongos provide a service to meerkat and babbler groups by associating with the foraging group and by giving an alarm call if they detect a predator. But the drongo also isn't as nice as it seems, because if they see a meerkat or a babbler catch a really juicy looking prey item, so something really big, something worth it, they will give a false alarm call, which causes the foraging individual to drop whatever it's got and dash to safety. And the drongo, which is very acrobatic and very, very good at grabbing things on the wing and swooping down, will get this prey item for itself. So there's been really lovely work that's been done by Tom Flower, who's a a colleague and a friend of mine, showing how the meerkats and the Babblers actually respond to these deceptive calls by the Drongos. And what they basically do is that the first time the Drongo gives a deceptive false alarm, the Babblers and the meerkats will respond. But if the Drongo keeps doing it, they get used to it and they start, you know, know—they—they they, it starts to ignore the drongo, basically. They don't respond anymore. And this is where the clever trick of the drongo comes into its own, because, because they're such good vocal mimics. Once the meerkats have stopped responding to, say, a shrike alarm call, the drongo will just give a starling alarm call instead. So it sounds different. It gets a renewed response from the meerkats and the drongo manages to continue exploiting the foraging individuals essentially
0: very good very good um we have a we we we're coming towards the end of our time but we have a couple more uh, questions um one is about the kind of practical application uh, of your work of, of of what you know um uh, to humans trying to get stuff done and i think if i understand evis rosales's question um, uh, it's about if you know if we're trying to get people in in a in a in a group to do something with us um uh, uh, are there any suggestions that the that, that that from the work from the behaviors you've observed about how to do that
1: so i don't work in this space but i have read um a bit about i guess effective leadership or encouraging um individuals to you know behave in the way in a team way or in in an organizational setting and I think that one of the important elements is to avoid this what I called earlier big shot behavior where you're basically aiming to Um, throw your weight around and to tell other individuals what to do and instead to use I think James Timpson who is the CEO of Timpson the online shoe retailer calls it upside down management where you shrug off essentially the the benefits of your higher status position and you um, you position yourselves with the other members of your team that you want to encourage them how to behave you you do you you know you be the change you want to see to put it in a cheesy way so um i don't know i i don't do much work in organizational settings but i think what we know from how human psychology works and what we see in some of the foraging societies studies that i talked about earlier is that aggressive coercive behavior where individuals throw their weight around or where they show off or flaunt their status in an attempt to get people to either respect them or to behave in a certain way is often quite heavily resisted and i think that that same aversion to those kinds of strategies is is still is something which all humans have and which we would do well to avoid if we want to do well in organizational settings
0: yeah i mean i i I, I absolutely agree. Although I suspect that that's true within groups rather than between groups. Um,
1: yeah, that's I, an interesting point. I mean, there's quite a lot of work looking at the kinds of leaders that people prefer, in and particularly when there's when there is a threat of between group conflict versus when there's not. And some of the work in that space has shown that when there is a threat of conflict from another group, people tend to prefer more dominant. More coercive leaders, because in that situation, those kinds of leaders can actually um, uh, can be beneficial. So I think you're right, actually, that, that it is very context specific as well.
0: Yeah, I mean that takes us back to the to the question right at the beginning from David Harris about war. Um, so the, the the last question that I wanted to ask you is from Solhi Han, um, uh, who 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 asks a very, a very deceptively simple question about, um, uh, about politics. And I think that you've hinted just now about what you think the answer to this is, but um, uh, if you were in politics, would you invest more in altruism or self or, or, or obviously self-interested behaviors?
1: I think I'd be pretty careful about any overtly pious displays of altruism, because I think, you know, something we haven't talked about today, but um something which is the case is that I I call humans intuitive bullshit detectors essentially. And what we do as humans is that we constantly try to impute intentions and desires and motives to the people that we see performing certain behaviors. And we're especially likely to do this in the case of altruism where we don't often accept altruism at face value and we frequently try to Ask well, is there an ulterior motive? Why are you doing that? Could you be doing that because you it's good for you in this setting, or could you be doing that because you know it makes you look good? or so I think I'd be quite careful about any um potential for accusations of um of pious altruism in that sense. but I do think the question is interesting because one thing that's always puzzled me in a way about the politicians we get. Is why they aren't more um, humble and more other regarding and more willing to admit when they're wrong, and more generally um, able to be to express humility. And I and I actually my sense is that if you can do that credibly, that would be an effective leadership strategy. And again, to go back to some of the work that's been done. In forager societies, contemporary forager societies, that does seem to be what people expect from their leaders. They expect their leaders to throw off the benefits of that high status and to behave with humility and to be generous and acting in the interests of the group. Um, and I think it's it's always surprising to me that that isn't something that that a lot of politicians don't appreciate more in a way. Um, but I wonder if that's something to do with the kind of person that gets attracted to going into politics more yeah. than anything else.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think it's the right question, and I don't know the answer. I suspect a lot of it is situational. You know, in order to be in politics in the first place, you have to have displayed a set of behaviours and you have to have survived a set of circumstances, um, most of which run contrary to to what you've just described. Um, but, but we've come to the end of our allotted... Time um, and I just wanted to to say that one of the you know first of all I love this book uh, because it speaks very directly um, um, to to some of the background the kind of hinterland for the things that we care about at, in social sciences and, and specifically at Marshall. Secondly, that it it, it honors you know um, the empirical method and 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 real science, but still manages to narrow the gap between how things are and how they ought to be um particularly in your last answer uh and third because uh it's rare that i read a book this well written um i genuinely think uh, uh it's a, 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 a it's a very successful um uh, it's a very successful book and i commend it to all of you listening to this and thank you nicola for joining us at the lse thank you to those of you who've joined us uh, from wherever you are in the world thank you to my lse and Marshall colleagues for um, helping us put this together. Thank you very much.
1: Thanks. Thanks, Stefan.